Welcome to Podship Path. This is your host, Jared Blumenfeld. I remember sitting with my grandma, Lena, who was in her 80s, and together watching the first episodes of Life on Earth. This BBC Wildlife documentary was on how life evolved on our planet, and it was mind-blowing. First of all, it was in vivid color at a time, 1979, when my grandma had one of the first Sony Triniton TVs in a 100-mile radius. Life on Earth showed us parts of the world most would never have seen, like the Galapagos Islands. And for me, it helped make science and evolution real. Here's the director and host, David Attenborough. There are some four million different kinds of animals and plants in the world. Four million different solutions to the problems of staying alive. This is the story of how a few of them came to be as they are. On this week's show, we talk with Andrew Graham Brown, who is a wildlife TV producer, director and cameraman for the BBC, Channel 4, Discovery, National Geographic and PBS. His films have won over 20 international awards, including an Emmy. At the beginning of his career, he directed the BBC's Top Gear. But for the last 20 years, he's focused on nature and wildlife filmmaking in Antarctica, the Arctic, seven countries in Africa, Papua New Guinea, Indonesia, South America, Mongolia and China. In making the observational documentary The Hyena Men, Andrew spent three intense months filming on his own with a street gang on a garbage dump in the thick of Lagos, Nigeria. Recent productions which he filmed, produced, and directed include Kangaroo Dundee, The Great Polar Bear Feast, and Mississippi, Tales of the Last River Rat. Bringing it full circle, Andrew was the executive producer of The Giraffes, Africa's Gentle Giants, which was narrated by David Attenborough. Andrew's current focus is helping document chimpanzees in the wild. I start by asking Andrew, who I went to high school with in England, how he got into filmmaking in the first place. When I was 15 years old, I I got my first camera. My dad gave me a camera and she took me down into a dark room. And that was the days when you actually, we were using film we went through that whole magical process of going out, taking a fa- taking a, a roll of film, then going into the dark room with the red light and seeing your image come up in that dish with all the chemicals. It was just a magical, magical experience. And I'm very grateful to my father because I was completely hooked on photography from that moment. How have you decided what topics to focus on? Well, in my early days, you would uh, apply to get onto certain projects that you knew that the BBC were making. Uh, if, for example, I worked with a guy called Ray Mears, and he, he was all about going around the world and, and trying to get into the head of indigenous people, be it the Aboriginal people or the Sambushmen living in Africa or a tribe living in Papua New Guinea. And, of course, the, the, me who has wanderlust, the thought of just being able to go up the Sepik River in Papua New Guinea to go and hang out with a tribe that only a previous generation had been cannibals. I mean, that's just a dream for me, to, to be able to go and hang out with these people and to try and find out about how they live and how they live with the forest. Who wouldn't want to go and hunting with the sand bushmen? This sort of 
inverted commas, the oldest people on the planet. But to, to see and, and hear about their wisdom, about the way they live with the natural world. But my first film that I ever made was in Mongolia. I went and spent a month living in Mongolia in the middle of absolutely nowhere. Recently, you made a movie called Hyena Men, which was quite a wild ride. The Wild West of Africa, home to one of the world's most extraordinary street gangs. A traveling circus that use an intoxicating blend of voodoo and dangerous animals to make a living. They ride the hyenas. They ride hyenas <laughs> like horses, yes, they do. And uh, uh, with muzzles. Yeah. So it's kind of medieval in many respects. It's, uh, and uh, they also sort of... Uh, Nigerians are very superstitious. They're very superstitious, yeah. the Nigerians. So they believe in things like amulets and charms and black magic and things like that. And but after watching your program, I did too. <laughs> because no one seemed How to. How do you get... subdue it? Well, no, I... but no, but like the snakes. They have these very poisonous snakes. That they put in their mouths. Yes. Yeah, and, yeah, but they never seem to bite them. But what I wanted to try and do is find out whether behind the image there was actually sympathetic people mm. that you and I could relate to. And guess what? They were really very lovely people and they were mm. extremely protective of me. I, I travelled most of Nigeria with them. One of the, their activities that they do is this... Uh, extraordinary form of uh, boxing called dembe where where they it's a sort of a ritualized uh, well it's a very violent sport and, and for example they'll go and they'll bury their hands in a grave for uh, a week a human grave thinking that that somehow they'll they'll sort of pick up the power from the, those, those sort of spirits gone by and and, and that will be sort of transformed into power to overcome the uh, um, their opponent I found myself with my camera going into arenas in the in the back down this sort of labyrinthine uh, these sort of passages. So that's a pretty good gang to hang out with yeah. when you're wanting to navigate the streets of Lagos. You yeah. know, you've got you've got five hyenas, you've got a gang of 30 people, you've got baboons. Baboons, by the way, have huge teeth and they can do serious damage and bite you. There, baboons are much more frightening than uh, hyenas, of course, because baboons are much more like humans and uh, they're clever and they scheme and they look for opportunities when uh, they can. When you're off guard, they that's throw when they rocks. Bite you. Yeah, they, they can throw rocks. Yeah. Accurately, too. Yeah. Andrew, here's a clip of your daughters talking about you. This is our dad. He is a wildlife filmmaker and he goes off for months at a time travelling all over the world making wildlife documentaries. And it sounds like a really cool job, which it is, but he misses quite a lot of special occasions and he misses our birthdays and stuff. Last winter, he was away from home for five months in Antarctica making a film about penguins. He was going to be away from us over Christmas, which would have been awful. So we packed our bags and... They all flew down to Antarctica to meet with you. But you had somewhat of a more difficult journey getting down there. I did have to go through hurricanes and uh, endure penguins constantly projectile shitting over me and over my camera lens. They're so cute. They're gorgeous. They're so sweet. Yes, but they, and yet they projectile shit on you. Yeah, and it's not just shit. It's, it's shit that's composed of krill, and so it's very, very stinky. Uh, and uh, it also has a consistency that uh, is like glue. So that when it when they fire with great accuracy at your lens, because you're, the, the way to film penguins is to be right next to them on a very wide angle lens. That's how you sort of bring them alive and uh, bring them into people's homes is, is by being right next to them. I like penguins, but I also have a deep hatred <laughs> for them. And of course, it's light. When I was filming there, I was predominantly there during the summer. You never see darkness, so that adds to the insanity. 
uh, perpetual light is, yeah. is, a, is a psychologically very wearing thing. And yes, uh, I have to say, I, I arrived with great uh, jubilation when I arrived in Antarctica, but by the end I was... I would say I was almost broken. You must have to be ridiculously patient to be in your line of work. Uh, well, some of the wildlife photographers are, are truly amazing. I mean, uh, I, I, I wouldn't. I, w I try to do <laughs> pick subjects that are easier usually than uh, penguins. I mean, penguins are easy. They haven't been uh, through evolution taught to be terrified of humans, so they have no predisposition to be terrified of humans. Uh, so, so that you can literally park, uh, you know, 30 kilograms of camera equipment and touch their nose and they don't flinch. They take it in turns sitting on the egg. Uh, one goes out and gets sort of krill and sort of food and then they come back and, 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 and then that sort of relieves the other to go and do it. So they share the, the, the incubating of the egg. And so they only show the egg for a, a fleeting moment. And then you see the first the beak come out of the egg which is a really exciting thing and then you actually get the shot of it and you're very sort of happy and then you want to see the rest of it well that can actually mean having to hang around for another th two days actually so you have wow. to just sit there amazing just yeah. on the ice yeah you just have to sit there in this in the snow that by the time when the chicks are hatching actually there's they've they've produce so much shit everywhere that there's the, the, the shit's sort of melted the snow kind of thing and it's it's this soup of a slush. So let's maybe yeah. move on from No, that. no, no. It's the <laughs> reality, like, the like reality yeah. yeah. <laughs> let's talk about chimpanzees, guys. Some places in Africa, the chimpanzees are totem animal and they would never dream of killing a chimpanzee. Other parts of Africa, chimpanzees are on the menu. Now, humans have been hunting and killing animals ever since we sort of came into existence. But the problem is now, because the population is massive, and the uh, appetite for uh, meat is so large that, that, that the numbers of chimpanzees that have been killed either to be eaten or the illegal wildlife trade, the numbers that are being taken from the forest is just totally unsustainable. And of course, one can feel very sort of colonial being a, a Westerner going in and wagging your finger saying thou shalt not eat chimpanzees, but the problem is, is, is literally the population of humans is growing so fast that it, what, what perhaps would have been acceptable 50 years ago is no longer acceptable if we want to save the species. When I was born in 1967, the estimate is that there were between one million and one and a half million chimpanzees. Fast forward 50 years and perhaps there's 180,000 chimpanzees left. So that means there's been an 80% decline in the chimpanzee population in my lifetime. Fast forward 19 years, there may be no chimpanzees left in the wild. Well, it's very difficult not to try and think about what we can do to try and prevent that from happening because the trajectory of extinction is, is, is happening at such an exponential rate that you know, unless we really step in now there will be apocalypse. What are we meant to do with that, Andrew? I mean, what literally, what are we meant to do with that? Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right, Jared. There's, if we give the sense that it's all over, then the prophecy will fulfill itself, which, of course, we don't want. So we have to have hope. Hope is the most important message that we can get. But the practicality is a highly, highly complicated issue because there are so many issues facing, for example, the chimpanzee deforestation, 
the use of pesticides, um, people illegally trafficking them, people eating chimpanzees, and so the list goes on. I think the only way we're ever going to stand a chance of saving wildlife is, for, particularly in places like Africa or Asia, is for the, the people that are actually living with these uh, creatures, is to feel that they actually have a value, not just a value uh, financially, but also just an intrinsic value in being something of, of great beauty. But if you're someone that has absolutely, absolutely no money and you've got 10 children and you want to feed them and you want to send them to school, you can see why if you own a piece of forest that's been passed down through your family, you will chop those trees down and replace it with a, a quick cash crop of sugarcane. I mean, the story of humanity is a wave of blitzkrieg. What Darwin showed was that there was a direct descendancy between us and other primates, and even that, the word other, that we were connected, that we weren't some completely separate foreign object that miraculously appeared. We share we, the same family album exactly. with chimpanzees. We have a common ancestor. In very conservative communities, the two things that they're very afraid of are evolution and climate change. And evolution is because I think people want to feel special. They want to feel unique, exceptional. And how can we be special and yet have a family album that's also shared with chimpanzees? The big challenge is to overturn in our mythology that we are indeed exceptional. That is a very dangerous idea to think that for some somehow a god of some description created us to be able to fuck up the entire world around us, you know, to have dominion over the earth. That is one of the most worrying, sort of pervasive thoughts in our society. We we keep chimpanzees uh, to do biomedical testing on. There's still circuses in America where chimpanzees turn circles on 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 bikes. Um, in China, there's a flourishing chimpanzee circuses and in the Middle East rich people pay huge sums of money just to have a little chimpanzee in nappies to sit on their lap so they can show their friends that they have an exotic pet so the, I think the challenge that we've got is to actually overturn the idea that we are indeed exceptional that is probably the biggest challenge that we have got that we also need to understand the fact that we are animals we breathe oxygen, we drink water. People, when they see documentary wildlife movies, uh, films, programs on the BBC, they think that the people behind them must be very objective. But you're a fierce advocate. I probably, through my travels, began to see a sort of a common picture, irrespective of which continent that you're filming on. Chimpanzees is the thing I'm filming at the moment, and you go to Uganda, which is the centre of where I've been filming, and the forest is vanishing at such an unprecedented rate. Everywhere you see there's fires burning, there's either tea or sugarcane fields are replacing the natural forest homes now. But like tea, so we just had a cup of tea. Yeah. And um, I don't know where the PG tips comes from. I suddenly feel a pang of guilt that I drank tea that I don't know where it's from. In Uganda, the forest, as I say, is disappearing at such a fast rate. And that really is, frankly, 
pretty much happening because of sugarcane. It, it's palm oil that affects the orangutan in Asia, but in certainly in Uganda where I've been filming, it's sugar. This so literally, tea. it's everything that that I continue the the English tradition of having tea. So the biscuits have palm oil for the orangutan. The sugar that you add is from Uganda from cutting down trees, and then the tea also plantations. So the traditional British tea, maybe we need to just ban it. Well, maybe probably. We but maybe Brits- we get the Queen to say this tradition is now going to come to an end. That's right. I'm very good friends with the Queen, actually. I'll write to her and say, Excellent. let's not drink tea anymore. The thought of British people not being able to drink tea is is, is almost impossible. To, I mean, can you imagine, Jared? And now a word from our sponsor, Thrive Market. Pesticides, pesticides have screwed up my Most of what is grown today is treated with pesticides. That's not so healthy for the environment, but does it really affect us? A new study published in JAMA Internal Medicine suggests frequently eating organic food can lower the risk of developing cancer. In fact, this new French study of 70,000 people found that eating organic food lowers the risk of some cancers by 25%. Most of the news coverage of this groundbreaking report blames the high cost of organic food as the reason more of us aren't eating healthier. Those journalists obviously don't know about Thrive Market, a revolutionary online marketplace that makes healthy living accessible and affordable for everyone. All of Thrive products are 25 to 50% below traditional retail prices. And get this, at Thrive, my favorite brand of organic coconut milk is half the price of the same product at my local Safeway. Organic food doesn't just have health benefits for humans. As we're discussing in this week's episode, chimps are suffering because of the unsustainable farming of tea, palm oil, and sugarcane. By going organic with Thrive, you will also be healing the planet. Thrive takes all the guesswork out of healthy shopping by allowing you to filter their catalog, whether you're paleo, dairy-free, kosher, or gluten-free. With just a click of the button, Thrive does the homework for you and makes sure your groceries fit your values, dietary preferences, and of course, your budget. The most exciting part of all of this is that Thrive Market is giving Podship Earth listeners 25% off their first order and a free 30-day trial. Just go to thrivemarket.com slash podship. Thrive is already 50% off, and now they're giving you an extra 25% discount. There are no codes. Just make sure to type in thrivemarket.com slash podship, and the discount will be applied at the checkout. Thrive Market has a zero-waste policy, so after you order your organic groceries, you can expect them to arrive in a 100% post-consumer content recycled cardboard box. Go to thrive.com slash podship and feel good about yourself and the planet. There's no reason to panic, because Mother Nature's got a brand. It's called organic. And now, back to our episode talking with wildlife filmmaker Andrew Graham Brown. Some have accused wildlife documentaries of painting an overly rosy picture of what's going on. Some films seem to just show the beauty without addressing the mass extinction of wildlife. If you scrutinise the films, even the the films that I've made myself, you can uh, criticise them for not actually telling the world what's going on. There's been a, a lot of criticism about... Uh, the industry that I work in that, that 
filmmakers are incredibly selective about how they frame an image. If you frame two degrees right, there's going to be a pylon in shot. Well, we, people watching their television on a Sunday night don't want the spell of uh, some creature living in this so-called Garden of Eden being spoiled by a nasty image of a pylon. So cameramen and women are, are very selective about what they frame. And if you want to show films that are going to be shown all over the world, um, a big criticism has been that we haven't told the world what's going on because there's this sense from the commissioning editors around the world that people don't want the doom and gloom about what's going on. They want to be feel happy and they want to be entertained and all that kind of thing. That's really there's interesting. Been, so. but, but there has been something really interesting that happened. There's a, a series called Blue Planet 2, which was a mega blockbuster made by the BBC. And there was a scene of a, a mother whale and uh, the, the, the mother's young whale that was, was covered in plastic, basically, and choked and died. Here's David Edinburgh, the director of Blue Planet 2. For years, we thought that the oceans were so vast that nothing we could do could have an effect upon them. But now we know that was wrong. That has been one of the most powerful natural history sequences arguably of all time because people suddenly got the message plastic is killing everything in the ocean. I defy anyone to watch that sequence and not be in tears because it was basically what you were watching was this, this poor whale basically suffocating because of us. And, but the good news is, is that film has made a difference. It, and the way it's made a difference is it really does appear that we are going to get on top of our use of plastic. The idea that the commissioning editors and the people that produce wildlife films are trying to give us this sense of an unspoiled Eden. The good news is I do think there's a change. I think we can be criticised about that in the past, but my sense is when I go to commissioning editors now that there is a change, that they anyone realises that we just cannot carry on making these disney films. It's our duty. You were talking about telling the truth. We can no longer go to these places and make these Disneyfied films that are just happy films about the world. We, it, it would be irresponsible and, in fact, lying to the audience. Part of your role is documenting things that might not be here 40 years from now. Uh, I certainly don't want my films just to be a museum piece of these great exquisite creatures that have, are hanging on to life now. And, uh, I don't want just to document something to put it in a museum. You can look at it in many different ways. You can either just look at the intrinsic beauty of the natural world and that perhaps should just be enough for wanting to save it just for how exquisite it is. And as an interview I was doing yesterday was talking about we're all made of the same stardust, you know. There's, because we have the ability to sort of look forward into the future, 95% of insects in Europe have vanished because of the use of um, agro... Uh, chemicals. How does that connection to all living things impact your own work? I've never felt any connection with a polar bear or a kangaroo or a Komodo dragon. But the connection I felt with chimpanzees, this is why I'm obsessed now. It's kind of like I've seen the light kind of weird, in a weird kind of way. I, I'm, I am totally obsessed by chimpanzees because I'm sort of thinking if we can't save our closest cousin, if we can't do that, then there's absolutely no hope for anything else because it it's like 
you, I defy anyone to look into the eyes of a chimpanzee and not to see themselves or to see their children. There's a lot of hope when you go to Uganda. I've been with people that are working day and night to plant corridors of forests that reconnect uh, two fractured, disparate parts of forest that used to be continuous forest. They're now planting thousands and thousands of trees to, re to make these corridors, to allow for the genetic flow between the disparate two different communities of chimpanzees to prevent inbreeding, to give them the fruit that they need, the trees that they need to build their nests. There is huge hope, but what we need to do is build an army of people, a, a much bigger army than we have at the moment. Tell us a little bit about opportunities that, that law enforcement collaboratives have to, to bring some of the perpetrators of the trafficking and the bushmeat of chimps to justice. There's an amazing group that have just granted me access to go and film undercover with them, to see them intercepting criminal syndicates in the highly organized wildlife pet trade. And what's so wonderful about what they do is not only do they rescue chimpanzees from a future of imprisonment, say in a circus or uh, to perform in the Middle East, amongst the wealthy. They intercept these criminals and they use the full judicial process to, to get them in, into prison for, for their crimes. And the, the prison sentences are becoming longer and longer. If you get caught with a chimpanzee, you're, you're gonna go away for 10 years. They're called Eagle and they do amazing work. And of course, it's not just chimpanzees, they pangolin, they, which is one of the biggest, probably the most trafficked animal on the planet. Are chimps still used in animal testing? Breeding of chimpanzees in order to inject them with, say, the HIV virus or something, that has stopped on American soil. But my understanding is, is that the way laboratory scientists get around that is that they set up places in different parts of the world. But we test on monkeys. So, just not chimpanzees. Just, well, not on great apes. So, uh, you know, the difference between a great ape and a monkey is a monkey has a tail, but they're still... <laughs> they're still sentient. Oh, really? So that, I never they're sentient that beings difference. that can still feel emotion, they can still feel pain, they can... So how did we come up with that differentiation? We're great apes, along with gorillas, orangutans, bonobos and chimpanzees, and then you have monkeys who have tails. So the great apes don't have tails. So for animal testing, they do still test on monkeys, yes. just not on great apes. That's correct. A chimpanzee has 98.7% of the DNA in common with us. If you could stop the habitat from being cut down for sugarcane and tea, and you could deal with the international illegal trade in pets, and you could deal in bushmeat, those three things, would that, would that provide a solution? Each one of those things has, has sort of knock-on effects. So if you look at agriculture, well, in certain parts of Africa, DDT is still being used. Well, there's a community uh, I'm about to film in Uganda whereby where 25% of the population or the community of chimpanzees have facial disfigurement because they're consuming crops that DDT has been used. I mean, it is so poisonous and it is so ruinous to the environment. But in and Africa, yeah. they've got these huge stockpiles of DDT, and if you can buy that for a knockdown price, 
people use it. So, Andrew, what's your recommendation for those who want to follow in your footsteps and become a wildlife filmmaker? I think the first thing is to come up with the story. If you've got a good story, it doesn't matter whether you shoot it on your iPhone or whether you shoot it on a camera that costs £100,000. It, it really is story, story, story. We do obsess about image in wildlife photography. It's always about 8K is the big thing, you know, ridiculous size imagery. that. Uh, so you can obsess about the quality of image. And, of course, it is lovely to get really beautifully lit, high-quality images. But arguably the films that are made on really cheap equipment if the story is good it's kind of what it's what it's filmed on is immaterial there's a saying from an author in britain called uh, robert mcfarlane and he talks about the undiscovered country of the nearby and i love that because it i'm for example about to embark on making a film about my local garage there's two old boys that have been running this garage for 40 years and it's a swallow sanctuary every year from south africa that they've never left their county these two old mechanics and we're going on a bucket this journey of a lifetime to follow them all the way from somerset in green and pleasant england all the way to the southern tip of africa a six thousand a mile journey and on that we're going to go all the way through Africa and we're going to see what does what we're going to look at the world from the point of view of the swallow what does this what's the landscape that the swallow is flying through how's the landscape changing what obstacles does this this extraordinary creature this extraordinary feat of migration what obstacles do they come across one of the big ones for example is the Sahara Desert that's becoming much bigger through climate change will the swallow be around will it return as it has done mythically and in, in the great story we have great folklore stories of the swallow and these I hope guys we, are going with you yeah we're going to build a, a couple of uh, Land Rovers of course it's got to be a Land Rover yeah. it's terribly British but and they break uh, down a they lot. break down with great frequency but of course that will add a great narrative to the film how do you mend a, a broken down Land Rover in Africa the good news is that the people I've uh, met in every country in Africa are so uh, uh, they're so good at mending stuff so it sounds like you want to keep making wildlife films it sure as hell beats the shit out of working in a bank if I'm brutally honest in my view anyway of course the money's not as good as being a banker but who gives a shit about yeah, the you've money lived a life yeah a life capital as my father always used to say is, is, yeah. is, is much more in life what have you learned about our relationship to nature well we're fucked basically unless we do something very very quickly to try and sort it out because everywhere i've been i've seen the hand of man i want to point my camera because i suppose uh, you sort of, what else can I do to try and tell people about the de- what's going on? We need to prove that that prophecy is wrong. And the only way that we're going to prove that that's wrong is, 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 is if we change radically what we're doing. I just think, uh, what, is, what do we need? We need a fucking revolution is what we need. Thanks so much to Andrew Graham Brown for talking with us today. He really has had a wild life. Because so few will ever see the secrets of the natural world around us, Andrew is in many ways our eyes and ears. This week, the World Wildlife Fund published a report showing that between 1970 and 2014, the size of animal populations have declined an average of a staggering 60%. No wonder Andrew is calling for a revolution. Next week we celebrate the 50th anniversary of the Wild and Scenic Rivers Act by canoeing down the Feather River in Northern California. 
Thank you so much for being part of the Podship Earth journey from the entire Podship Earth crew, sound engineer Rob Spate, producer Nancy Ferranti, executive producer David Kahn, and from me, Jared Blumenfeld, have a wild week. <laughs>